0: Good morning. I am Pastor Mike. I want to shout out um, how very few people said thanks be to God to that passage. Who's bummed? (laughs) We'll get to that in a second. Before we start, I actually want to shout out Rory. That's Rory Dunbar. She is our, yeah, woo, Rory. (laughs) She is our diversity dialogue ministry team leader, and I just wanted to shout that out because we have a thriving online community that those of us who come in person during this COVID season have Probably not laid eyes on. And they're trying to be involved and we're trying to find ways to keep them in front of the community, to connect them to the community. So shout out to Rory. Hopefully, she is not the last that we see join us digitally for these Sunday morning experiences. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, for the sermon today, we are continuing Fortune Cookie Wisdom, our series on the concept of biblical wisdom. And we're actually going to kind of close out a subsection of this series today, and that is we're going to finish up our exploration of the wisdom literature. That is the four Old Testament books that explicitly explore these different perspectives on what wisdom is. And as we've been talking about, they do that in this interesting way. They do that through conversation with each other, each providing their own unique perspective on what wisdom is so that all together, in unison, we can actually find God's multifaceted divine wisdom. And thus far, we've covered three of the books. That is Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Job, which means we have one more to go through today. But first, let's talk about my nana. That is my grandma. Look at little Mike. (laughs) Behold, (laughs) I was small once. I met nana around the age of 10. After she had moved to Tallahassee for reasons that at that time I didn't really fully comprehend. And ultimately that didn't matter. Because we started spending a ton of time together quickly. And y'all, I loved Nana. She taught me all sorts of things. Like how to paint. She shared her stories with me. She gave me tons of candy. It was dope. But she had not given me dope. It was dope. Very different. (laughs) I found that on my own later. Anyway, (laughs) moving on. (laughs) But (laughs) what I only understood later in life was that one of the main reasons she moved to Tallahassee was actually because she was very sick. She wanted a relationship with us, her grandchildren, before she died, which was imminent. I will always remember getting picked up from elementary school early and learning that she had passed away. It was the first sense of the finality of death that I can recall in my life. That first realization that there was this person who I loved that I would never see again. Now, I'll also always remember how we set out soon after fulfilling her final requests, most of which were quite normal, but one was definitively not normal. That is, she wanted her ashes spread in her favorite spot, which was the rose garden of Disney World. And you might say, oh, that sounds nice. But I want you to actually think about the implications of what I just said. Does Disney welcome people to dump their dead loved ones in their parks? Yes or no? Who wants to take a guess? Big time no. See, what followed was something that could have only happened pre-9-11. That is, in an effort to honor Nana, we smuggled her ashes into Disney. And obviously, we couldn't sneak her in with a coffin or an urn. Those don't really fit in a purse. So we used the next best container, Big Gulp Cups. Because who checks the content of Big Gulp Cups? Not Disney. Spoiler, it worked. I remember being so afraid we were going to get caught. We weren't. And we were able to lay Nana to rest in her favorite spot where she still resides amongst the roses. So next time you go to that park, yikes. (laughs) It's a funny story, right? It's absurd. It's real, in case you doubt that. But it's funny. However, beneath its absurdity, something else happened that day that's a lot less funny. See, for the first time, it hit me that this is our fate. Myself, loved ones, Enemies, no matter what we've done, who we are, what we've accomplished, all of us will end up in this cup eventually. Probably a coffin or an urn for normal people, but you get what I'm saying, right? Live long enough and everyone has a confrontation with this cup at some point. Our impermanence, mortality, The fact that to be human is to fundamentally know that one day you will die. Who's bummed yet? But it raises important questions, does it not, this confrontation that we all must face. What is wisdom in facing death? How do we live wisely as we see this cup at the end of our lives on this earth? That is what our last wisdom book Ecclesiastes tackles directly, offering the gut punch of the wisdom literature. And last week, Scott joked that we've discussed all the taboo topics in this series. We've done suffering, diversity, sex. Well, now you can add death to that list because that's where we're going today. And we're just going to dive in. Ecclesiastes begins in verse one, chapter one. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, stop. It's interesting what happens in this book. See, Ecclesiastes' author is anonymous. Some believe it's King Solomon. Others, that it's actually a wisdom teacher, later writing in Solomon's persona, which was a very common genre of the time. But neither interpretation actually changes the book's message because ultimately the focus of the book isn't on the author. It's on this central character that he introduces in this opening line, this figure called the teacher. And the teacher is meant to be the epitome of the kingly voice of Israel's wisdom tradition. The author only speaks in his own voice in the introduction we just read and then at the book's conclusion. And it's the teacher's voice that comprises the majority of the book. The author simply wants us to hear what this wise teacher has to say. And the teacher offers an incredibly unique perspective in this wisdom tradition. Rather than do what the other books that we've looked at do, which is that they focus on old, time-tested, generational wisdom, the teacher's wisdom is explored purely through lived experience. Essentially, I've seen and done it all, and here is what I have learned. And y'all, his experiential wisdom is unsettling. It's jarring. You'll see why in a second. It centers around... Two key phrases that are introduced repeated, are immediately and repeated over and over again in the book. We find in verse two: "Meaningless, meaningless," says the teacher. "Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? "Meaningless and "under the sun," they get repeated more often than any phrase in Ecclesiastes. And we have to grasp both phrases to really understand the book and what the teacher is trying to say. First, under the sun. This refers to life in this world as we know it. This world that is paradoxical, mysterious, and chaotic, as Job taught, that there are no perfect formulas that we can navigate it with. This world that's simultaneously good and broken at the same time. Beautiful, and yet not quite as God intended. And what's life under the sun like? It's meaningless, the teacher says. Now, this English word is misleading. It infers that life has no purpose, correct? That's what meaningless means. It's not what the teacher's trying to say at all. You see, in Hebrew, the word here is havel. Who Say it with me. Havel. That was terrible. No, I'm just kidding. You guys did great. Havel literally translates as mist or smoke. Smoke, smoke. Everything is smoke. That doesn't make any sense. Baha. Uh-huh. You see, the teacher uses an Ecclesiastes to mean something different. He uses it as a metaphor. A demonstration actually captures what he's doing pretty strongly. And I know you guys like props. So, smoke. Is something that we can see, but when we try to grab it, we can't, right? It's something that looks solid, but when we actually try to reach for it, it kind of slips through our fingers. Are you tracking with me? It's almost like there's nothing there when we actually try to grab hold of it. That quality is what he means by life under the sun is a veil. It's fleeting. More so, like smoke, it's defined by enigma, this absurd quality that we all kind of sense but don't often talk about. Even the most solid-seeming things slip through our fingers when we actually try to grasp onto them and hold onto them in our lives. Good times fade before we can appreciate them. Just when we start to succeed after all of our hard work, bam, tragedy strikes. We all say we want justice, yet when you look at the world we've made, the righteous suffer, and the wicked succeed. Every time we think we have figured out how this world works, bam, something undermines our system of thought entirely. No matter how simple, permanent, or clear things seem, under the sun, life proves ungraspable. Does anyone get what I'm saying? The teacher isn't saying life has no meaning. He's saying I've done it all. And I have found that this life under the sun is constantly Havel. It's an enigma. It feels absurd more often than not. Who's bummed? Well, it gets worse. <laughs> because from here, the teacher has one goal, and that is to prod us into something that I call deconstruction, to identify where we try to create meaning, significance, and identity from what's Havel instead of God, and then prove to us through his strong logic that such efforts are stupid, foolish, absurd, which sounds harsh, but Ecclesiastes is wisdom for a reason. You see, the teacher knows that though painful, deconstruction is a necessary act in spirituality, that like plants, faith requires pruning to be healthy. The identifying and cutting away of false hopes, delusional expectations, silly illusions about how this world works. These things have to be pruned so that healthy faith can grow and replace the gaps that are created. Healthy wisdom comes from pruning in the teacher's mind. A healthy wisdom that can survive the absurdity of life under the sun. That's ecclesiastes goal but first we must prune away where we've trusted in smoke so the teacher arms himself with what he believes are three realities that render havel our attempts to create our own meaning significance and identity apart from god under the sun they're everyone's favorite the march of time death and luck and with these realities He sets out smashing what we most often engage as if they can create meaning, significance, and identity. Wealth, status, pleasure, and work. Who likes those things? Get ready, because it's brutal, y'all. The teacher will say essentially, so you believe that you can create meaning, significance, identity through acquiring wealth and status. That's so nice that you think that. But then he'll prove that time, death, and luck expose such pursuits as foolish in this area. He'll say, let me tell you what I've seen under the sun. People believe more money, status, respect will complete me, will give my life meaning, so they acquire it, but then they get too sick or they get too old to enjoy it. They get everything they ever wanted, and they still get depressed. At the end of their lives, they still regret all the time that they lost acquiring it, all the things they missed in that pursuit. Or, They lose it simply because they had bad luck and has no guarantees. And even if they don't have any of those things, guess what? One day they're still going to die, no matter how rich they are, how respected they are. And when they do, they're going to discover that none of it comes with them. And then they leave it to their spoiled kids who waste it. (laughs) That's the nature of wealth and status under the sun. Thus relying on it for life's meaning Y'all, that's grasping at smoke, expecting to find something solid. That's Havel. It's absurd. Well, what about pleasure, we say? YOLO, right? I'm here for a good time, not a long time. (laughs) Ecclesiastes 2.10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. The teacher said yes to every new desire that came his way. Every pleasure at the end of his life claims it was chasing after the wind. And that sounds poetic, it sounds a little highfalutin, but I think it's understandable. Let me throw out some parallels. If I could just get that new iPhone, then I'd be happy and content. So you get it, but then the next iPhone comes out. Who's still happy and content? Havel, Havel, Havel. Or if I could just make it through Friday to the party on Saturday, sex, drugs, rock and roll, that's what I live for. But then Monday always comes again, does it not? Or if I, oh man, pizza. I love pizza, I live for pizza. Except for I get hungry, I get the pizza, I might enjoy it. And then inevitably, what happens, I become hungry Again, Havel, Havel, Havel. It's not that pleasure is a bad thing, but it's fleeting, it's smoke, thus believing that it makes life meaningful on its own? Y'all, oh, that's Havel. But Mr. Teacher Man, us Americans protest. I got one for you. How about work, career, hobbies, volunteering, parenthood, sports, producing things for other people? This is America! America! Surely that's meaningful. Well, the teacher sighs. And then he asks, what lasting, ultimate meaning, significance, identity can your work create? What do you all think his answer is? None. He'll say, you can believe that work can create lasting meaning, but nothing humans create is permanent civilizations, empires, movements across all of history, they were all here one day, gone the next, with the march of time. He says, look at the mountains and the sea. Those lasted way before and way after anything any human has ever created with their work. Or you can believe that work will let you leave a legacy, which surely will make your life significant. He says, ah, 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 under the sun, you can't guarantee that your work has the impact you want after you die. You can't Guarantee that you'll be remembered in a hundred years. You can't even guarantee that by bad luck, your work, your legacy won't actually produce something horrible that you never intended. And consider the anxiety that striving for that legacy created in your life. How it consumed all your time, your energy, your family, your health. Oh, well, sure, that might be true, teacher, but identity, surely my work gives me identity. Well, the teacher says, reflect on why you work really. And what he claims is that most of us work because of one core reason, envy. And what he means by that is it's either because we want stuff that others have, or more often, because we believe our work will make us matter. And we're like, no, no, that can't be it. But let me ask you guys honestly, how many of us work ourselves to do death, in careers, parenting, hobbies, sports, volunteering, whatever, because deep down we're just insecure, because we are constantly comparing ourselves to others and thinking that our identity is on the line in that good or bad comparison, because ultimately we believe that if we're better than someone else at anything or if we produce enough for others, then maybe we can know that we matter in this world. And the teacher asks, and you think that motivation creates healthy identity? I mean, just think about it, he says. There will always be someone better at you at any activity that you ever do, past, present, or future. And honestly, eventually, time, death, or bad luck will take away your ability to do that thing at all. So if your identity, if your value, if your self-worth is tied solely to it, Oh, child, what's left when it's gone? That's Havel. 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 Works good. It's a God-created, God-ordained part of who we are supposed to be in this world, but believing that it can create for ourselves real meaning, significance, and identity. Utterly Havel. 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 Everything is utterly Havel under the sun. We check back in. Who's bummed now? (laughs) But remember, Ecclesiastes' goal is not just to depress us. It's trying to give us horrible tasting medicine. It's trying to get us to deconstruct these absurd efforts to create meaning, significance, and identity so it can guide us to the real source of those things. There's a garden that Ecclesiastes wants to grow within us after this pruning. And it's a beautiful one. It's not found through simple answers, but it's found through this real wisdom that you'll see the teacher offer over and over again, this real, complex, beautiful wisdom for life under the sun. And paradoxically, it's a wisdom grounded in accepting the havel of life under the sun. The teacher argues this in a number of ways that I find profound. For example, in Ecclesiastes 4, the teacher says, some people respond to the havel of life by folding their hands in their laps. It's an image of apathy or despair, of inactivity, of squandering their life because they can't find meaning. And he calls that foolishness. He says, that's the path to ruin. Don't do that. That's not the point of getting all depressed and doing nothing. But then on the other hand, he says, others become workaholics. And he uses this imaging of toiling with both hands gripped, you know, working with all we've got as if constant activity will create meaning for our lives, which again, he repeats is chasing after the wind. But then he offers this third way that's actually quite beautiful. He calls it working with an open palm of tranquility, doing whatever God calls us to do, work, family, relationships, to the best of our abilities, but surrendering the outcomes to God. It's activity without expecting that such things will create what it can't, meaning significance, identity. As my sponsor says, you can plan the plan, but not the results. So what do you do? You work with an open handful of tranquility. And watch, as without your expectations for what that work will do for your life, the anxiety fades, and guess what happens? You just enjoy work for its own sake. Or another example, and this is my favorite in the book. At six different times, right as the teacher is getting most dour about how everything's havel, he'll get like kind of schizophrenic and say something that's wildly different. He'll say something like this, Ecclesiastes 9-7. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. So suddenly he'll go from meaningless, meaningless, meaningless to saying something like enjoy simple good gifts from God, family, friendship, good meals, beautiful days which he actually says we only can enjoy, I'm not sure if you saw this, when we accept the meaninglessness, the hell of it all, which I actually think is profound. I want to just say this, and I want you guys to see if you relate. See, I constantly, constantly create expectations for how my life must go, for it to be meaningful or significant, for my identity to be good and approved of by others expectations that I hold on to with both hands for dear life, falling apart when they're unmet, frantically striving to achieve them because in my mind, my significance is on the line based on how I perform. Are you guys tracking with me on that? And y'all, that's poison. It is poison. I must be the best pastor to be significant in this world, so I work late and neglect my wife. I must achieve every to-do list for this day to be meaningful, so I skip lunch, I skip the conversations with real human beings around me. I must create a good identity, my identity, by being the best parent, which is scheduling every second of every day for my child to make it perfect, so I never stop and just enjoy my children. I never stop and just enjoy the giggles, the goofiness, the smiles, the play. Think of all that we miss trying to create what we fundamentally can't under the sun. It is Havel, y'all. But this is what he's trying to get at when I recognize that these things, work, wealth, stuff, pleasures, plans, even family are Havel. When I stop trying to use them to create my meaning, significance, and identity, which they cannot do because only God can do that. When I stop that foolishness, then what happens? I stop imposing upon them expectations they can't meet. I stop trying to control them, manipulate them, micromanage them into being what I think they need to be. I actually just let them be what they are, as they are. And I actually find that I can enjoy them. I actually experience these everyday moments that are my life. These moments that if I miss enough of, I miss my life. I sit back, spend time with friends, Enjoy the process of my work. Savor the good days, because one day they'll be gone, and that's okay. As long as I experience them, and I'm present for them. I was listening to a Bible Project podcast on this book, Ecclesiastes, and they shared this quote from Blaise Pascal, a mathematician, that I think is, it just nails this sentiment. He wrote this, We're never satisfied with the present. We anticipate the future is too slow and coming as if we can hasten its course. Or we recall the past to stop its too rapid flight. We are so unwise that we wander about in times which are not ours and do not think of the only time which actually belongs to us the present. We are so idle that we dream of those times which are no more. And we are so thoughtless that we overlook the only time that we have, the only time that exists. It's because the present is generally painful to us, so we seal it from our sight because it troubles us. And it happens to be delightful to us, well, then we regret to see it pass away. We try to sustain it by the future and try to control matters which are not in our power, preparing ourselves for a time that we have no certainty of reaching. So, we should examine our thoughts, and we'll find that they are all occupied with either the past or the future. We scarcely ever think of the present, and when we do, it is only to take flight from it in an attempt to arrange a perfect future. The present is never our end. The past and present are our means. The future alone is our end. And so we never truly live, but rather hope to live. And as we are always preparing to be happy, it is inevitable that we should never be so. There's a gift in acknowledging that meaning, significance, and identity aren't on the line when I engage these activities and these people in my life. The gift is that I can be present and grateful for them instead of seeing them as some means to an end that I'm not even guaranteed of. And finally, the author returns evaluating and affirming the teacher's wisdom He affirms that this deconstruction is wise, that's necessary for good wisdom. Though he does offer an insight, which is that it's not all there is. Essentially, he says, get shaken up, that's good, but make sure that you then allow that to form a healthier spirituality, grounded in God alone on the other side. Essentially, we're not just doing surgery and cutting off limbs, we're doing it so we can have those things replaced with something better. And then he concludes by adding two final components for life after deconstruction. Ecclesiastes 12:13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every de- oh sorry, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. And what he's getting at is this, two components as we move forward. The first is trust. This is very much like Job, if you remember that sermon. He says, live wisely, but don't think that wisdom creates for us some formula that we can use to always get what we want. Don't think that by doing good, you're assured success in great things. Sometimes suffering will come under the sun, even if you did everything right. So instead, trust. Do your best, and when things don't go as planned, accept the havel of life under the sun. Have that open palm of tranquility, knowing that you're only responsible for what? Yourself, and trust the rest to God. And then second component, he adds hope. And This is so important. He reminds us, I mean, he says the word judgment, which is scary for us, but as an Old Testament author, what he has in mind is a hope at the end of God's story. God has promised us that one day, the Havel under the sun will be removed. That one day, God is going to make all things right. But until then, the teacher believes, the author believes that we have to confront this cup. There's also one of the beauties as Christians as we know a part of the story that the author of Ecclesiastes did not, which is that we know that we can face this cup with a profound resurrection hope. That we can face it knowing that Christ's resurrection means that it has no power over us. We still have to confront it because this life ends. But we can do so with hope and the promise of God. Surrender, presence, gratitude, hope. These transform everything under the sun. I don't need to be significant. My significance is found in the story of a crucified God who carried the weight of significance for me so I don't have to. I don't need to build my own meaning. Meaning is a gift. It's something that I experience when I'm present for this brief life that I've been given. I don't need to create my identity because in the biblical story, y'all, your identity is given, not earned. It's not created by you. It's spoken over you. Release your insecurity. You matter. You're valuable, not because you're some victor in this weird competition amongst human beings under the sun, but because you are a beloved child of God. Period. You can add nothing or subtract anything from who you are. You're a child of God. That significance, meaning, and identity that survives the havel of life under the sun, and it's freely given. So, reflect during this song. Where do you need to deconstruct efforts to create meaning and significance or identity from what smoke? Where do you want to be more present and grateful, good times and bad, because you know it's all a gift? Where do you need hope? Under the sun, from a God that said evil and decay and death will not get the last word on his good world. Ecclesiastes offers you good news and wisdom in that area. We just have to be willing to listen. Amen? Amen.